Our passage this morning will begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Um, this is our fourth sermon in this series. And um, what, a, what a wonderful letter. I hope you're reading it. And if not, I would encourage you to continue to think about reading Ephesians, maybe even weekly during this series. The whole letter probably takes about 20 minutes to read all the way through with uh, a normal speed. And uh, one of the things we've been noticing about this letter is just how it begins with just such glorious language. In fact, some of the commentators call the very first part the eulogy, the part after the intro, where Paul begins by just saying, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain how much blessings he has poured out on us, how we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world, how we've been adopted, how we've been um, sealed with his spirit, with the inheritance. Last week we looked at the, the following passage on prayer, where Paul then says, now in light of that, I want to pray for you. And he's praying that you and I, that the church would have knowledge of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to know and live in light of the rich knowledge? And then right at the end of that prayer, we move into chapter 2, and the very first word of chapter 2 is the word and. And the reason I say that is we're continuing that prayer, and I think what we're going to find is that the issues that come up in this passage this morning are really the beginning of the answer to the prayer Paul prayed. That we would know Jesus, that we would have a knowledge of him. What does that mean? And right, right off the bat, we're going to see in this passage two critical, and really three points will come out of it, three critical things we need to understand in light of this revelation. So let's read it together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, when, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to take what may be familiar words and even familiar theology, but Holy Spirit, let it be something that drives deep into our souls, that would move us. Lord, once again, we come across truths in these passages that, uh, in this letter, that if understood even a little more, would just have radical effects on our own lives, on our family, 
on this church body, on the world. But Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to, to help us. Um, help us lean in. Help the eyes of our hearts open up. Only you can make these words make sense. Show us the blind spots. Show us the calluses. Melt them away that we may grow in you this morning. Amen. On Thursday night, I watched the sixth installment of Harry Potter. That's why Wilson wore the tie he wore. There it is. That's not really why. Uh, my daughter, all of my children have, well, three of my children have read the Harry Potter series. And once they read them, we get to watch the movies. Well, I have never loved the movies. But uh, we watched it, Bonnie and I, and it was really good. And I was just thinking as I was preparing this about Harry Potter because, now, and listen, if you think Harry Potter is of the devil and I should not watch it as a pastor, then let's have a, we can talk and I will apologize to you privately for watching Harry Potter. But for the rest of you, it's a really good, it has this like, you know, he's a, he's a wizard. <laughs> That's tricky for Christians to say. Uh, he is. But he thinks he's just a, you remember the first story, he's just a guy, he's just a kid. His parents have been killed. He's growing up with his awful aunt and uncle and cousin. And he finds out he was chosen. He finds out he was special. He finds out that the, the, the events that led to his parents' death meant something. And what I love is even by the sixth movie, there's still this sense in which Harry's like kind of famous. But you just don't know why. Like everyone's like, Harry Potter. And he's just this kid. And he's not even really good at what he does. And yet even... Uh, What's the, what's the main guy? Gandalf? I'm going to get my Lord Tolkien. Who? No, no, the main wizard. Dumbledore. See? I, that's for Coleman. That was for you. He'll never let me live that one down. Dumbledore has to shed his own blood, and he's like, your blood is special, Harry, and you're chosen. And just as I thought about that and came to this passage, it's just there's something about the juxtaposition of Harry being radically normal, and yet the truth that he is super special. And the reason I say that is as, as believers by faith, that's our story. Like you are chosen. You are special. God loves you. From the foundation of time, you have been his. And he has sent Jesus, the perfect one, to save you and rescue you. And what Ephesians is teaching us, what Paul is doing is he's saying, my prayer is that these truths would come into you and wake you and I up from our apathy, right? It would wake us up from the daydream of our lives that we often live. And it's this passage, 2, 1 to 10, that I think begins to really help us turn the corner because what it does is it gives us even more theological understanding of the things we need to understand. There's three things we're going to have to grasp to understand what it means to be in Christ, chosen in him to really grow in this life. And before I say the three points, I'm going to give you what I'm going to start using as a term, the Peter principle. Just made that up. We can start like a book club on this. And it's just that, you know, the story of Peter looking down and then sinking. I think when we come to theology that we're going to cover, where we'll go wrong is when we immediately come to point one, two, or three, and we look at our own experience too quickly. You were dead in your trespasses. You immediately look at your life story and go, well, I, I was 12. I wasn't that bad of a kid. So we want to kind of pause for a minute at each of these points and look at what Paul's teaching and then begin to look at how we might have experienced 
these truths in our lives. So here are the three God rescued you. Those are the three. Who you are and then why God rescued you. Those are the three things. And let me say, these three things are like three points on a triangle. We need these three things all the time in our Christian lives. We're gonna, if we go wrong at one of these, we go wrong at all of these. We, sometimes we lose sight of the evil that we have in our flesh or this world. Or sometimes we lose sight of the, the beauty of who we are in Christ. Or sometimes maybe we think we have those two things down, but we lose sight of the purpose of our redemption. So we need all three of these to be working in unison. So let's look, look at them individually. Number one, who were you? So Paul is trying to answer, in a way, the prayer in this letter by saying, let me tell you theologically things we must understand in order to walk with Christ in this life. And number one, we have to understand that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, we get tripped up because you might think, well, again, I've already alluded to this, but, you know, I was, I was 13. You know, I lied a few times. Maybe I smoked a cigarette. You know, was I that bad? And that's, that's the, I want you to use the Peter principle. Paul is trying to get you to understand what you were like, even though you may not have felt it at the time. So we're not supposed to read chapter 2 and then immediately think, where was I the day I accepted Christ? In fact, it's interesting Paul's actually talking, it seems like, initially to the Gentile converts. And you might say they were super pagan, and so maybe they would have read this and thought, yes, we were awful. But I just want you to remember they were also a Roman colony. They had the best art, the best politics, the best food, and they probably didn't think of their past as being all that awful. And furthermore, Paul himself says we when he gets to verse 3, among whom we all once lived in, in the passions. So before I deal, dive into that, let me just say the three things you need to remember about our prior to Christ life. Number one, here's where sin resides. Three things. The course of this world, that's verse 1 or verse 2. The prince of the power of the air, that's Satan and his demons. And then thirdly, the flesh, which is verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So when you think about where in the fallenness of this life exists, it's in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those things are part of it. And we have to understand those to some degree to be aware of the radical evil that exists in this world. Um, it's hard because I think we're very tempted if you think about just the way, one of the ways the world influences us is to think things aren't that bad, right? And humans, if we put our minds together, we can fix this thing. We kind of have this desire. I think spiritually we do this. We think if I um, do certain techniques, if I do certain practices, I will improve myself. And the one that I think we almost all forget about, especially in a Western world, is the fact that there is a spiritual realm. There is a real devil and there are real fallen angels and I don't know how it all works but Paul tells us that and I believe him. So a biblical Christian then is one who can say I'm not sure of exactly when and how this happened in my life but I agree that when I was born I was born separated from Jesus from God I was dead in my trespasses and there was nothing I could do to save myself. No amount of teaching, no amount of insight, nothing. I needed God to rescue me. 
Now, I want to give you Paul's story to kind of bring that out. Remember, Paul was a very good person. Like, if Paul were in the church today, we would say, that guy should be an elder. Like, he's doing it all. And yet, on the road to Damascus, when he's blinded, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Paul was a great Jewish person who hated Jesus and hated the movement of Christianity. What I'm saying is, religiously speaking, he had it all. We see that in Philippians 3. When he was circumcised, the tribe he was in, the the group he was part of, what he did, he was zealous. And yet Paul puts himself in the category with this audience by saying, we all live in the passions of our flesh. When you read Romans 7 and Romans 8, Paul is wrestling with the fact that even in his flesh, he can't do what he wants to do. The very things he wants to do, he says he can't do. And the very things he hates, he does. He recognizes that even if you think you're doing good works, if it's not in Christ, they fall short. So the question then is, are we as Christians, when we hear the word trespasses and sins, only thinking about like technicolored things? That's how we're pretty much in the evangelical world, we're predisposed to thinking about, like, the things that would end up in a newspaper, the things you didn't be embarrassed to tell your parents about. Those are real problems. But so many sins that we commit are respectable. Things our culture says are fine. Our culture doesn't mind if you're greedy. Our culture doesn't mind if, you're, um, if you tear up people verbally as long as they're really bad and deserve it. You see what I'm saying? And so the challenge is, is to read this and go, wait, time out. Do I have this past? Am I dead in my trespasses? Was I dead in my trespasses? Excuse me. Later in chapter 4, and one of the reasons why I want you to read the whole letter is it really works together. Paul then brings up the same topic again by saying, do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So in our passage, he's saying, It sounds like he's saying, you used to do this, but now you do this. In in chapter 4, he's saying, however, you still can live as a believer with the futility of the Gentile mind. That is, those that don't believe. He goes on to say, um, assuming that you have heard about Christ and are taught in him, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. What Paul is teaching there is what's true of you, if you're a Christian, chapter 2, where we're spending our morning this morning, is you used to be this way in reality, but now we're going to talk about in a moment who you really are, okay? This is your former manner. Yet to be a Christian and to grow, we need to continually press into that past and to the way it affects us in our present life. Um, Richard Lovelace, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. The lifelong process of mortifying sin involves a gradual detection process by which the particular forms in which sin expresses itself in our lives, our characteristic flesh, they're uncovered to our view. Some of this discovery of sin occurs early in our Christian lives, but the subtlety of the indwelling sin is such that many of its deeper roots remain under the surface of consciousness, where they will continue to distort our lives if they are not uncovered later. New departments of the flesh open up in our lives as we mature. The child who has been converted at eight faces a new crisis of repentance at puberty. 
The leader who has spent his life learning to use power constructively must face his own unwillingness to relinquish it in his later years. Even conversion itself opens up the possibilities for new developments of spiritual flesh, pride in gifts, pride in spiritual achievements, envy of the spirituality of others, a gluttonous dependence on spiritual experience which cannot reconcile itself to an obedient walk of faith independent of sight. The gravity of self-interest which naturally operates in our lives whenever we move out of the light and walk in the flesh is able to shape even religious intentions into carnal patterns. What Loveless is teaching there, and I think what Paul is setting us up for, is the understanding that to grow in Christ, we must recognize the way, the manner of life we once belonged to and how real it is and how present it is even today in our lives. What is your own story? I didn't really start walking with Jesus until I was 18. That's when I really thought about Bible studies, going to church, growing, reading my Bible. But I will tell you, I believed in what I was a Christian at age 8, 100%. Like I would tell you now. When I was a freshman or sophomore in college, I had far more sins to deal with than when I was 10, 11, and 12. In other words, even as I'm walking with Jesus and starting ministry, and I mean, I'm 46, there are things I've contended with this very week that as an 8-year-old would have just sunk the boat. You see what I'm saying? And these patterns are present. And if I'm aware of their presence in my life, and you're aware, then as they come up for us, we see opportunities to further believe this truth. That God came and rescued me from these patterns. And we thank him for showing us the ways we operate. Many of these ways look good to us. What kinds of patterns are in your life? What kind of um, things have you identified about your past? Do you think about, like, for example, if you were a child and your role in your family was to keep the peace, and now in your organization, maybe you continue to do that to a fault. Maybe you're so bent on those old patterns to keep the peace that harm can happen. Or I make lots of jokes. Oftentimes I think it's at moments of stress. So maybe I would look backwards and go, why did I begin doing that? And take that to the Lord and begin to go, okay, these patterns, I can now see how they're rooted in my own flesh and I can grow in them, I can grow from them in my present context. So point one, and we'll continue to build on is you need to know who you were and that will never stop. If you're 100 years old and you read this passage, you should still have something to learn about your former manner of life. At every step, we're going to learn new things that we've done because it's not just the years leading up to being a Christian. It's every part of your flesh that operates in you this side of heaven. That's who you were. But point number two is who you are. And I have to find that note. There it is. You're all like, maybe I'll lose it. But this is where it gets good because you're feeling the weight of sin. Who are you? I mean, the beauty of this passage, those first two words of chapter, of verse 4, but God. I love that. Here's the truth of who I was. John Owen once said, uh, you have a little view of sin, you have a little view of Jesus. You have a big view of sin, you'll have a much bigger view of Jesus. And so Paul has teed us up to go, oh my goodness, the weight of this is overwhelming. And then he says, but 
God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul has prayed in that prayer at the end of chapter 1 that we looked at last week, that you and I would understand the power of God, which he defines as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And now, in chapter 2, he is saying, you and I, because God, have been raised with Christ already. Now, remember the Peter principle. Don't ask yourself, am I experiencing that right now? You should do that as we go along in our faith. But for the moment, I think Paul wants you to, by faith, believe this is true of you right this moment. If you are in Christ, this letter is to you. And it's not saying if there is evidence of this, then it's true. It's simply saying, listen, if you want Jesus, he wants you. And that means if you have any desire for God, any inkling of a mustard seed of a desire to believe in Jesus, God's already working in you and opening your eyes. And if you believe Jesus Christ is the son of God and you place your faith in him, regardless of anything you've ever done or ever will do, you are already raised with him. You've died and been raised with him already. And Paul goes overboard to make, uh, make us understand this is completely by mercy, completely by grace. Um, the difference between grace and mercy, though both words are used, I was just thinking about this as I worked through this. When I, when I used to work at the mall and I knew people that worked at other stores, like other um, concession stands, you would walk up and your buddy would be like, hey, you want a free Coke? Anyone have those friends? Like, I'll give you the free Coke. You're like, oh, it's cool, thank you. The other day I was at um, Chipotle and it turned out I knew the girl and she's the manager and she's like, it's on me. It's awesome. And then I left thinking, I wonder if how the owner felt about that. You know, like somewhere somebody's like, where are the chips? We got, we're short chips, we're short queso. It's easy to give away stuff that's not yours, isn't it? Kind of fun, actually. Hey, I'll just take care of you, you know. God did not do that. God gave away something that was uniquely his. God came to earth. When we hear the name Jesus, do not forget, Jesus is God. And he came from heaven to earth and he dies to purchase your and my forgiveness. And the mercy that he gives us is very costly. And we did nothing. And he's raised us, it says, in Christ. The question is, is this something that moves you and drives you? I can tell you that oftentimes what we lose sight of is this was the way it was supposed to be. Before the fall, we were to be in union with our triune God. God never set up the creation to where mankind operated on, on their own. We always are to operate with this perfect unity. Death, which was the punishment of the fall, brought separation. So... When the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and we became converted and, the, and Jesus came into our hearts and we became in him, which you read over and over in Ephesians, that's not sort of like a prosthetic arm, like we wanted you to have the real arm, but you've got a prosthetic arm. This is like, no, this is the design. We are in union now with the triune God in Christ. That was the way it was meant to be. Yesterday we were heading into Edmund and 
we're in a conversation. It's gonna, it was my daughters, my wife and I. We get in the van. We're driving. We get on I-35. We're cruising. Not quite the Mulhall. And this, the ding. You know the ding? Oh, my gosh. And, I, of course, you know, Emily, why did you fill the van up? You know, my son comes out. She handled it very well. I would have been more mad at myself. And then I realized I should have looked. And then we do this, like, okay, thanks to modern technology, we can look at the range left. We had 19 miles. Ugh, like, the Guthrie X, it's like 15, 17. She had to Google map it. And uh, the other, actually, sadly, this happened recently, and I had the range, and I noticed it wasn't accurate. Like, it dropped faster than the miles were coming. Have you, like, I'm like, it doesn't even know. Like, ah, I'm on a high. Anyway. And we just exited at Mohaw. Went under I-35, came back up I-35, went to the cowboy corner, bypassed the free soda that was tempting, filled up the thing, and just kept going. And I don't know, what am I illustrating there? You all know what I'm illustrating there? We need fuel. My car, I want it to be where I just get in it, and I start it, and it just goes. I need fuel. You need fuel. You are not designed to run without it. And that fuel is Jesus Christ in you through his spirit. And what that means is positionally you are raised with Christ, you are in him, and that is your truth. And the challenge for you and I now is to make this make sense by faith. And part of the way we do that is point one, we recognize all the ways we're trying to live apart from fuel. Your old manner, how are you trying to go it alone? What ways do you operate without any thought of Jesus, without any thought of Christ working in you, without any thought of God's love? And we begin to pay attention to those things, some of which are really shameful sin practices, but a lot of which are the things that you thrive in. Maybe it's what makes you the best at what you do, but it's done completely out of your flesh. And so point one drives us to point two, am I willing to go, yes, Lord, I want to completely believe that ready for the word over and over, I've been saved by grace, not by anything I've done so that I cannot boast. Don't we really, at the end of the day, wish we could boast? Don't we want, even when you know a famous person, have you ever had like something given to you, not like the cup of Coke maybe, maybe like, hey, I got the better seats at the, at the game, I got the box seat, I know somebody. We even brag about that. And what we're implying is, I was somehow better than you, and I got this thing. And here what Paul's arguing is, please, there's nothing you can boast about. Where are you boasting? Where am I boasting? What things am I putting my um, identity in? What thing, and here's the way you can test it. What things, if you take them away, make you really question if you're okay? When you pull them out, you start to feel uneasy. As a pastor, I've been processing that lately. What would it mean if you took that title away? If you took preaching away? What is it for you? What, th- what parts of your life, if you pulled it away, are you going to start to feel like you're melting? And you'll find those are things you boast in. Those are things you lean in on to assure your conscience that you're actually okay when all you need is Jesus. And so that leads us to the why, our last point. Why, why did God do this, this glorious rescue mission? Why did God take us 
who are by nature children of wrath and rescue us without any reason based on who we are whatsoever, completely, uh, completely by his mercy and grace. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus come and die on a cross to give us his blood coursing through our veins as fuel? And it tells us in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. The Greek word there, and I don't usually like to do the whole, but poetes is a really great word. If we get poetry, it's art. We are his art. Like God is proud of you. And when you think of what art is, it's glorious. A poem, a good meal, a beautiful sunset. When you see the handiwork of God, your natural inclination is to say more. I remember uh, when we were swimming on a 4th of July. Uh, again, I use my children all the time. This is about Meredith. I think I told her I was going to do this. And it, I mean, this has been several years ago, so she was quite a bit younger. But Meredith's a very cheerful, happy child usually. And uh, we were swimming. And I mean, it was, she was having a blast. And she just said, Dad, what are we doing next? And it was just joy. And then someone in the group's like, isn't that just like kids? They always want to know what's next. And I was like, stop. I was like, this is normal. Like, we want to repeat. We don't want things to come to an end. It's G.K. Chesterton who Keller has quoted many times saying, you know, in heaven it's going to be like, do it again, Daddy, do it again. Like, you know, children want glory and want beauty. And when we see a sunset, we think that is the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen. Is that even possible? Are you really ranking them? No, it just feels so present and so real. All you know to do is to give it praise. That is what God does, and we are his workmanship, and he praises you because of who you and I are in his son. And more importantly, or as importantly, we praise him. I remember the movie of the TV show Murphy Brown. Any Murphy Brown fans? Oh, my goodness. Murphy Brown was awesome. I always find my old people. Sorry, no nods. No nods. Murphy Brown, played by Candace Bergen. I guess they needed a new character later in the show, so they brought in Eldon, who was the painter. And he never finished painting her house. That was the weirdest part. Like, I guess she would go, I don't like it that blue, changed it a little bit. And so it gave them dialogue. Well, apparently on the side, Eldon was a fine artist as well, and he had like this installation. And uh, so all these characters from the show who are like newscasters and stuff, they go to this thing and they walk in and it's just this white room with the, like, movie theater, ropey, vel velvet things that they were all kind of walking through. And I'll just go ahead and tell you where the art was. The art was on the ceiling. He had painted, a, like, a ceiling mural. But they didn't know that. And so they all walked in. And they're like, where's the art? And this is the only reason I'm telling this illustration, because I love this line. One, one of the people go, oh, we're the art. I'll just, I'll never forget that. And then he's like, no, it's up there. And they're like, oh. Well, we are the art, right? God made us his workmanship. And then in verse 7 it says, he raised us, or in verse 6, raised us up with him, that's Jesus, and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is glorified in his rescuing of you, 
in his redeeming of you. And what do we do? We bask in that and we respond to that. And it says at the end of verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Remember the Peter principle. Don't go, ah, oh, I don't have those. I'm going to sink. Actually, by faith, you say, no, you do have good works. Jesus works in you. When you read Westminster on good works, the Westminster Confession of Faith, insofar as these works are of you, they are fallen. But when they are of Christ, they are redemptive. There's nothing we will do perfect. But I promise you, when you walk with Jesus and his spirit is in you, you become a blessing to people. When you're kind, when you're filled with joy, when you see each other, when you care for one another. And I want to just end with this illustration because we are starting to run into the end. Um, and Emily's not in here, so I can brag about her. She, um, was, she used to do music, which I think she might admit wasn't her forte. She's the art teacher now. That's still what a Christian. But she was helping this year with the, the music program. And she was telling me one afternoon, she's like, oh, yeah, like today we were doing the rehearsal. And there's a student who is, um, you know, kind of a misunderstood student, misunderstood kid. And um, he had memorized all of his lines. But the problem for this, this part of the music, part of the play was the line came right after a song. Whereas a lot of the memorization, you, you did it with other people. And so in the practice, the song would end, the music teacher would look at him and he would just freeze. And she saw this happening and it happened twice and then that was it, the rehearsal was over. So she went up to him and sat down and said, hey, uh, how are you feeling? And he's like, oh, I just, you know, and he was kind of upset. And she just kind of sat there and said, hey, I, I would be nervous too. And she just began to talk to him like, I'm with you. This is hard. And don't you get embarrassed when it's time? Yeah. Let me ask you, have you memorized the word? Oh, I've got to memorize. And so as they talked through it, he just started to feel more and more comfortable. And she just said, why don't you tomorrow, when that happens, why don't you just know? And she began to kind of coach him on, this is normal. These feelings are going to happen. And you just confidently say them. And then that was it. Because I remember when she told me the story, I thought, did you rehearse it one more time? And they, no, that was it. The rehearsal was over. So we went to the performance, and he nailed it. He nailed it. And I just thought, isn't that a picture of what Jesus does for us? That he comes right in and says, I get it. I know. I have walked this, this road. Yes, he was without sin. But Hebrews tells us he knows your plight. He sees you. He chose you. He loves you. And he went to the cross for you. And so how are we his workmanship? Be that to other people. When you think about works, love your neighbor. Like, care for the person next to you. Like, how are you in a conversation with a roommate, with a spouse at work? Like, the simple places of life where people need to be seen and cared for and loved and hear the gospel. To hear that Jesus Christ is real, that he came from heaven and earth to rescue his people and would love them if they would turn to him. And you can minister in his name. So the three things you're going to remember going forward. One, we have this uh, past where we were dead in our trespasses that continues to try to plague us as Christians, though it's not true. We have this present reality, this 
new reality that we've been raised with Christ. We've been completely set free. And three, for the purpose of being the workmanship, the art of God in every place we are in life. Not because that makes us better, but because that reflects Jesus to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love being your workmanship because it takes all the false pressure off. We know that there's nothing we can do on our own, but we were designed to walk in union with you, resting in your identity, knowing that our true position is in heaven where you are seated. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would begin to help or continue to help your people love those around them, to see them, to move toward them, to care for them. Lord, teach us to pay attention to the ways our pride tries to take us out, where we try to live apart from you. And Holy Spirit, give us the courage to run back into your arms and to confess that pride. Teach us to keep short accounts with people whom we've harmed, to love people around us, even if they're difficult. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that none of this is even possible without your amazing work. Amen.